You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to the end. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on one another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the signs that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit." Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not play take place in the winter, because those will be days of distress unequal from the beginning, when God created the world till now and never to be equaled again." If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days... Following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be scattered, uh, will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it twigs, get tender, and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. Do not know, you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with other assigned tasks, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the cock crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Thanks very much, Chris, and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the leaders here at City Church, and um, it's going to be my privilege over the next few minutes to unpack what that all means. So um, I'd really appreciate it if you would pray (laughs) as we embark on this together. So why don't we do this? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks to us of significant things, things that are important for us to know, to consider things that will indeed change our life and our world. We ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding, particularly on a passage as difficult and as challenging as this one. Help us to appreciate the words that you would have us embed deep into our heart. This passage is full of warning. And I pray that you would protect us from dismissing it or being distracted by things around us, perhaps things in the week to come, help us to hear your voice to every one of us personally. Amen. Okay, let's begin with a question. What would you give to see the future? What would you give to see the future? It's an interesting question, isn't it? As you're mulling that one through, I want you to come back with me a thought experiment, if you will, into, uh, into the nostalgic past of the 80s. Now, some of you can't remember that. Some of you have only seen it, you know, Stranger Things on TV. Come with me through the world of imagination to the 80s. Now, I was a child of the 80s, and um, on a kind of like a lazy Sunday when you've kind of played with all your toys and there was nothing else to do. There was one toy that you could go to that you could kind of squeeze out any last remaining kind of joy or thrill or excitement from a lazy Sunday afternoon, and that was, da-da-da, the Magic 8-Ball. Any of you ever heard of the Magic 8-Ball? Well, the Magic 8-Ball, this was a strange and mysterious toy, Uh, and it worked like this. You would... You would ask the magic, it was not very big, you would ask the magic eight ball a question and then you would kind of shake it uh, and then it would give you an answer and and you would wait to see what answer it would reveal. So for example, if, you know, we're back in the 80s, so this is the type of thing that you would ask, you would, you know, say, is Back to the Future the greatest film of all time? It's back in the 80s. So you would shake it and it would come out something like, without a doubt, that's what it would say, that's what it would say. Or, or you would kind of like, you know, you're a kid and you're thinking like shaking it. Uh, should I or should I not, uh, you know, should I, should I ask out that girl at school that I've had my eye on? And the magic eight ball would reply to you, uh, very doubtful, very doubtful. Now our passage, our passage is all about future predictions. 
It's all about future predictions. Uh, so imagine with me, imagine shaking the magic eight ball. Imagine shaking the magic eight ball and asking the question, oh, do I have a great future in store for me? And imagine the reply that you get being, there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Ooh. Well, that's making for a very, very serious Sunday afternoon, isn't it? Imagine if you ask the question and you're shaking the magic eight ball and asking, will I get married and will I live happily ever after? And imagine the reply that you get back is, brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Whoa. You'd be thinking this is a very serious Sunday afternoon. Now the disciples are with Jesus. Jesus' big claim is that he is God. And so unlike the magic eight ball, which was ridiculous, it was, it was fun, it was silly. If you didn't like it, you could just shake out another answer until you got the one you want. If you ask Jesus, if you ask Jesus the future and he tells you, you don't get a second opinion and you don't get to reshake, that's just what's going to happen and you have to take it seriously. Now, the issues with this is Jesus this afternoon is going to reveal three things to us in this room and those of us watching online. I guarantee you this, if you take this in, these three things will have the power to change your life. Pay attention. I've got three points. The first one's this. Bad stuff will happen. Bad stuff will happen. Now, the building of the temple great temple in Jerusalem would have dominated the skyline of the city of Jerusalem, a lot like the Eiffel Tower dominates the skyline of Paris. But the temple in Jerusalem also dominates this part of Mark's gospel that we've been trekking through over the last few weeks, because the temple represents the old established order in the Israelite nation, which is why since chapter 11, we've all been doing lots of things with Jesus and his disciples, all in the shadow of the great temple. Jesus has been meeting the officials all associated with the established order, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, those who are kind of part of King Herod's gang, all the big players all around the temple. And Jesus' disciples, who were with him at the beginning of our passage here at Mark chapter 13, along with the followers of Jesus who declared him king. Do you remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and they were shouting, he is, he is our king? That's what they were celebrating. The disciples would have been looking around the temple at the very beginning of our passage and they would have had all of the impressiveness of the building in front of them. Because they're thinking that Jesus is going to come in with a political revolution. He's going to overturn the old order. And so the disciples most likely are looking at the grandeur of the temple and saying, this place is amazing. I'm going to have the corner office when you get into power, Jesus. That's what they're thinking. Verse one, look at me at verse one. The idiom that is actually used here is you can't take your eyes off this place. That's what it would have meant. And look at Jesus' shocking reply in verse two. 
Let me paraphrase it to you. It's this, nah, this whole place is going to be rubble. That's what Jesus is basically saying in verse 2. And that would have been, is, that would have been, let me picture it to you, that would have been as outrageous as going over to some sort of selfie-snapping tourist outside of Buckingham Palace and going, yeah, nah, give it five years, that place is going to be tarmac car park. Outrageous! And to prove Jesus' point, he then exits the temple for the final time and goes over to the Mount of Olives, which was a little way outside of the city of Jerusalem. I want you to feel the tension of this moment. I want you to feel the tension. In verses three to four, you've got Peter, John, James, and Andrew, and they're still reeling from Jesus's statement that the temple is gonna be destroyed and what this will all mean. And so they press Jesus for the question, all right then, Jesus, then when? If it's gonna happen, then when? And Jesus, Jesus loves his friends. Do you see that? He really loves his friends. And so he draws back, he draws back the curtain of the future to reveal them the secrets of what is about to happen so that they are ready. Wouldn't you do the same? Wouldn't you do the same for the friends that you love? And so Jesus describes the events surrounding one of the most horrendous and cataclysmic events in Jewish history. It happened somewhere between 66 AD and about 70 AD, and it was the destruction of Jerusalem. We need to flash forward about 30 to 33 years from this point. So Jesus is revealing the next, what's going to happen in the next 30 years. And what he's talking about here, because when we get this, the rest of it will kind of make sense. Jesus is talking about a moment when a crowd of rebels take over the temple and they take over Jerusalem. They're they're called a, a group of zealots and they declared independence from Rome. And what do the Romans do? Well, the Romans do what they always did when there was a rebellion. They sent an absolutely massive army to besiege Jerusalem, which they did for about five months before finally breaking through and they burnt the temple and they absolutely massacred the inhabitants of the city. You want to get a flavour of it? The historian Josephus, he says this, He's talking about the Roman soldiers. They went in in numbers into the lanes of the city with their swords drawn. They slew those whom they overtook without mercy. And they set fire to houses where the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and laid waste a great many of the rest. They ran everyone through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with the dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree, indeed, that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. It was a truly, truly awful event that no one who was listening to Jesus in Mark 13 could have at all fathomed would be waiting them only 30 years or so in the future, which is why Jesus, who desperately loved his friends, 
wanted them to be ready so that they might be spared. You see, what made the situation worse when the Romans actually broke into the city was that no one was ready. Uh, And the eyewitness accounts recall how the the crowd, the population around Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem all crowded into the city at this time in order to find protection. They just followed the crowd and they went into the city, which was the worst possible thing to do. They followed their instincts and they crammed into the city and that led to, well, that led to communities within the city, many, many of them starving to death in the famine within the siege. And so many of them died in the famine by crowding into the city that Roman soldiers who were going into the houses in order to pillage them recall having going into upper rooms, finding corpse upon corpse upon corpse piled high of families that had died whilst they were waiting in the siege. Jesus loved his friends and so that he is desperate to warn them so that they would be ready. Which is why verses 5 to 23 provide a kind of countdown to this absolutely cataclysmic moment. It's a countdown that Jesus gives. It's not marked by date or times. It's marked by events and signs. So he's saying, look, look for the events, look for the signs, and that will remind my friends to be vigilant. So I want to briefly take you through what those signs were that he was telling them that they had to watch for. Look with me first at verses five to seven. This is countdown number one. False messiahs. Now, in between Jesus um, being resurrected from the dead and returning to heaven, and then 30 years or so later, the destruction of Jerusalem, a whole bunch of false messiahs, people saying, pretending that they were God, emerged. It was like false messiah whack-a-mole. You get rid of one, another one pops up. Let me give you a sense of that. Um, There was a guy called Thudas who took 400 um, Jews outside of the city who he had persuaded that he was truly God in order to go down to Jordan to see it parted like the Red Sea. It failed. Let me take you to um, a group known as the Sons of Judas. Now, they come across like a death metal band, don't they? Sons of Judas. Um, These are another group who pretended that they were gods. And then we come to my favourite one who's only known as the Egyptian. He gets the the prize for the most mysterious name. Again, he tried to persuade everyone that he was really God. Well, come with me to verse eight. Countdown sign number two, global conflict and earthquakes. Now, almost like runway lights heading towards the destruction of Jerusalem, there were all sorts of natural disasters and particularly earthquakes over the forthcoming years. Notably in Philippi, in Jerusalem in AD 67 and in Pompeii in AD 62. Earthquakes right across the empire. And Jesus was telling his friends, pay attention so that you are ready. Come with me to verses 9 to 13. It's countdown sign number three, 
religious persecution and social breakdown. Now, I'm not going to go into much detail on this one. You can read the book of Acts because the book of Acts is eyewitness accounts of this sign being a reality. And then finally, finally come to countdown sign number four. Look with me at verse 14 in your Bible. This is where Jesus borrows the phrase from the prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, if you're keeping notes. He takes the phrase, abomination of desolation. That is a pretty scary phrase, isn't it, in anyone's book? And it is literally a phrase that means gut-wrenchingly appalling. Gut-wrenchingly appalling. Now, it's normally in Scripture reserved for pagan worship when the pagan worship happens in a very holy or or sacred space. It's a kind of gut-wrenching, appalling experience that, that is described as the abomination of desolation when something like that happens. Now, the clue that we're given in our passage is when it says, standing where it does not belong. Do you see that in your Bible? Standing where it does not belong? Now, that could refer to the false worship in the temple that Jesus has been challenging. You know when he turned over the tables in chapter 11? It could be referring to that, that that's the sign that people need to get out of Jerusalem. Or equally, it could be referring to when the zealots took over the temple and Jerusalem, a rebellion leader called Simon Ben-Geo set up a fake high priest set up a fake high priest to offer sacrifices in the great temple of Jerusalem. And maybe it's referring to that. Either way, Jesus is saying to his friends, this is the sign, this is the alarm that you cannot afford to press the snooze button on. When you see the signs, get out. Don't wait, get out, leave. All right, so that's a pretty fast rundown, yeah? And you're probably thinking, this is a very weird history tour. I really hope that Jesus and his friends got out of the city before it was too late. But what's that actually got to do with me in Manchester, 2023? Why is this relevant today? Well, come with me to our second point. Bad stuff will happen to you. Bad stuff will happen to you. Look, this countdown at the very beginning of our passage is Jesus talking very specifically to his friends at that moment about a particular event that's going to happen in about 30 or so years. Jesus saw the established order being absolutely overturned for the nation of Israel. And even today, the temple in Jerusalem has not been rebuilt and the sacrificial system has not been restored. But, and this is key, Jesus also has in mind the moment that the whole world order will be overturned and changed forever. So he also has in mind the bigger change that's coming. Look with me at verses 24 to 25. Now Jesus quotes poetry here from the prophet Isaiah And the prophet Isaiah, if you were to kind of pull out that passage in verses 24, 25, Isaiah is talking about living in a world that's gone wrong. 
Isaiah is talking about living in a world of injustice and suffering, a world where children are massacred, where the poor are voiceless and where people are trafficked against their will. He's talking about a world that has existed ever since sin and rebellion against God has entered the world. And he's talking about the world that exists today. This is a big picture poem. It's talking about a dark world. You just have to ask the children who survived the bloodstained kibbutz in Israel or the children who are being plucked out of the rubble in Gaza whether this is a world which doesn't need intervention of justice. But this world isn't about problems just out there. The Bible is really clear that for all of the things that go wrong on our television screens that break our hearts, the real problem is for every single one of us in here. The Bible word for that is sin, but it describes everything that we have ever done to say, God, this is our world. You can just shove off. And every single one of us is guilty of that. Therefore, every single one of us is contributing and responsible to the broken world that we live in and to the world that Isaiah is screaming out in verses 24 and 25, this is not right, something must change. But the good news is, it will not always be like that. And the countdown, the countdown to the ultimate change in world order looks very similar This is key. It looks very similar to the countdown for Jerusalem in AD 70 or so when it was destroyed. Very similar. You see, in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8, he also uses the language that the world is currently going through birth pains. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we're told that as believers, we should not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon us to test us. The whole book of Revelation that has in mind the moment when God will finally bring an end to all death and sadness describes how Christians need to know it's going to get hard for us. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be pain. There's going to be imprisonment. There's going to be death before true justice comes. You see, Jesus wasn't just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He was ultimately talking about when all bad things will one day be undone. Which means here today, and I'm talking about us here at City Church, your experience of being a Christian over the years that you live will echo, it will echo the description of the countdown in Mark chapter 13. That's why we have to pay attention to. And that means, let me make this a little bit more concrete, you will meet at this church today, you will meet people serving coffee who either they have been or they will be passed over for promotion in their places of work because their employers are embarrassed about their faith. You will meet people in blue t-shirts on the welcome team whose brothers or sisters or parents will cut them off. They will cut them out of relationships because those people in welcome t-shirts refuse to call themselves anything other than followers of Jesus. 
You will see children running around this place, and it's wonderful, isn't it, to have families who in time are likely to have university places or college applications denied because they have said, no, no, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. And you may even be sat next to someone here this afternoon who perhaps in some year's time will be executed for following Jesus because they go to a country where kings or governors or rulers have outlawed Christianity altogether. Mark 13 isn't just about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Mark 13 is talking to you today. Well, let's make this a little bit more concrete. If you are a Christian here today, imagine you had a gospel magic eight ball. Yeah, a gospel magic eight ball. And imagine you, you shook it and you asked the question, should I wait for culture to become warmer to Christianity before I invite my friend to the carol service or intentionally invite them to one of the seeker courses that we run here or even take them out for a coffee to talk about something significant? The response you would get back is simply this. Look, the world today is a disaster. The countdown to the end has started. Don't wait. Now, if you're a non-Christian here today, and it's wonderful that you are able to join us, if you had a gospel magic eight ball and you shook it and you asked the question, should I ask Jesus for forgiveness today? What would you get back? Well, the answer you would get back is absolutely, look at the world. The countdown has started. Turn to Jesus before it's too late. But I guess that leaves us with that big question. Okay, the countdown is running before it's too late, but what is going to happen? What is the climax of the countdown? And that's our third and final point. Jesus will come for you. Look with me at verse 26. Jesus introduces the climax of the very end of the countdown to the end of history. And he says it's this, verse 26. The Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he's talking about himself. You see, the Son of Man was was Jesus' preferred nickname for himself, taken from the prophet Daniel chapter 7. Now, this cloud rider image is really significant because if you were in the ancient Near East and your God could ride on clouds, it meant that he was like super, super powerful. And so Jesus is saying, look, that's me. That's me. I've got all the power. And so when I come, it's happening. In fact, Jesus wants his listeners in Mark 13 to know that he's really quoting from Daniel chapter 7. Because in the book of Daniel, the part that Jesus is quoting from, there's a description of the Son of Man's arrival leads to the immediate destruction of, of four colossal monsters. And these monsters represent the abusive powers, the tyrannical powers from around the world. So you see, this cloud rider image meant only one thing. It means the undoing of anything bad, 
anything unjust. It is the finish point of all injustice. Just over a week ago, um, Johnny Clayton, uh, he's a member of the church. Some of you will know him. His father, Eric, sadly passed away. I've known Eric for a long time. He was, he was at Jackie and I's wedding. And um, uh, Reuben hasn't known a year where he hasn't received an awesome toy, better than a magic eight ball, from Eric, who always loved to give him a gift um, for birthdays, Christmas. In about a week's time, we will be gathered at the kind of funeral Thanksgiving service for Eric. And he was a believer, believed in the Lord Jesus, And there will be great sadness and there will be tears. But for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we will endure the pain of that loss, but we will not despair. And we will keep enduring and keep waiting because we know that one day the Son of Man riding on a cloud will come and death will be no more. We know that. And those of you who are believers who struggle with depression, you endure and you wait because you know that moment's coming too. And those of you who are victims of injustice who also believe in Jesus, you wait and you endure because you know that day is coming as well. But let me ask you this. Those of you who know that day is coming and you are enduring and you are waiting for that moment to be revealed, for Jesus to return... Let me ask you this, how do you know that he's really going to come back for you? How do you know that? How do you know that's just not really wishful thinking? Some years ago, many of you will know that I spent some time in in Vietnam. I was living there, I was working there. And there's a story that they tell still in Vietnam. It's about the fall of a city called Saigon, happened on the 30th of April, 1975. And it was a time on that day when the enemy troops were at the the very gates of the city. Uh, And the American soldiers and service personnel were all told, you've got to get out of the city because when the enemy come through, we can't tell what they will do to you. Now, there was a whole bunch of people in South Vietnam who had been supporting the Americans, working for the Americans. And they were told, look, the enemy is at the gate. Gather your family together, get your belongings, and there's going to be centres right across the city where you just need to go there with your family and wait. And wait. And we'll come and get you so that you'll be safe. They were never collected. There wasn't enough room on the aeroplanes or the boats or the helicopters. They waited, but no one came back. Thousands gathered at the embassy on that day and they were climbing up the walls on the, trying to get over the fences because maybe, just maybe, they could be safe. And they were trying to push their children over the walls to the Marines because maybe if they couldn't get out, maybe their children could be safe. Now, thousands were able to be airlifted out, but many hundreds of thousands were just left 
behind because there wasn't space. Isn't that what powers do? Promise the world? But when it actually comes to delivering, when it actually comes to keeping promises, when it actually comes to the rescue in the moment, they promise the world but can't deliver. Isn't, isn't the God of the Bible no different to that? Well, actually, Jesus says that he will not leave his friends behind. Look with me at verse 27. He says it here in this chapter. That's why this chapter is so precious. He says, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now that word angel either represents God's supernatural power protecting those that he has chosen to love or it refers to messengers, people like me and you who are sent right across the world to gather and collect those who are called personally by God to be his friends. How do we know that Jesus will keep his word? How do we know it's not just all talk? How do we know that God's love is enough for him to keep his promise? Well, look at what it cost him. You see, Jesus, he could have been evacuated out with fleets of angels and he said, no, I'll stay. We weren't even his allies, we were his enemies. And he said, no, actually, I'll take your place and remain on the cross in suffering. And I'll pay for what you did and you take my place so that you will be forgiven and restored to the joy of eternal life. I will be forgotten and abandoned so that you will know that you will never be lost or misplaced. I will die so that you will live. Do you see what it cost him? It cost him Everything. That's why you know that he will be good on his promises and whatever suffering that you are going through right now, and I know it is a lot for many of you, it is not the last word and it will not be the end. The Son of Man is coming and he will come for you. And so let me conclude with this. Jesus leaves us with two options in the light of the countdown having started. We don't know when the Son of Man will return, but we know that the countdown is well underway. Option one. Option one is just like those in Jerusalem who followed the instincts of the crowd, which led to disaster. Our temptation will be to follow the crowd in our city of Manchester And our temptation will be to live as if it doesn't matter, as if the countdown doesn't exist. To live as if justice will never happen and that it's just about survival of the fittest and to live so that we just talk to our friends about Prosecco and Tinsel. But option number two is to heed the warning of this chapter of Mark. And it is to be watchful and it is to be ready. What does that look like? It looks, number one, be concerned for the horrors of this world, but never be despairing about it. Number two, it looks like 
make every effort at every opportunity to gather with other believers, whether it's at church on Sundays or connect or equip, so that you can help equip and prepare each other to endure the persecutions and suffering that is to come. Number three, it is to bring everyone you possibly can, not to the embassy, but to Jesus, so that he might rescue them. For he says, you are welcome, whoever you are, no matter what you've done, and he will bring you safely home. Jesus told his friends this stark, urgent news because he loved them. What conversation will you have with the friends you love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we appreciate a passage like this is hard. Hard stuff to listen to. We would rather just ignore it. And yet the reality is a countdown has started and the Son of Man will return to bring an end. And so we must make peace with him before it's too late. Help those of us who are believers to keep enduring and to wait and to live our lives vigilantly, preparing for that day. And I pray that those who don't yet know Jesus may hear the warning of this passage and put their trust in Jesus and receive the forgiveness and rescue that he offers right now if they would only ask for forgiveness. Amen.